Welcome to the Peacebuilding Practitioner, a resource page and podcast for people working on conflict, on peacebuilding and on social justice issues. My name is Bjorn Eser and I'm the founder of and shaker and maker behind the Peacebuilding Practitioner. And today you are listening to the fourth episode of season two of the Peacebuilding Practitioner's podcast in episode number four. Antonia explores tested ways to avoid oversimplification while maintaining clarity in complex and often messy conflict situations. But enough from me, let me hand over to you, Antonia. Welcome! Hello fellow journalists, peace builders and change makers out there. Once again, I'm glad you joined me for another episode of our podcast on conflict-sensitive journalism. I'm Antonia Koop, former war journalist and international coordinator of PECOJON, the Peace and Conflict Journalism Network. If you are a new listener, you have stumbled into this episode but haven't listened to the previous episodes yet, welcome! I would suggest though you start at the beginning of the series, either with episode 1, or, in case you're no fan of the theoretical and conceptual, you can start with episode 2, where we begin exploring the practical toolbox of conflict-sensitive journalism. For those of you who have acquired a taste for my CSJ ramblings, I'm glad you're here again. Today I would like to expand on the challenge of conflict geometry we explored in the previous episode and look at conflict-sensitive journalism principle number three, exploring complexity instead of simplifying. Let's start with a brief recap of our last episode. We talked about the second principle of conflict-sensitive journalism, one that gives us one of the most important tools in our CSJ toolbox, the geometry of conflict. I described to you how journalists often fall into a trap created by their own assumptions that many of us share. We tend to believe that conflicts consist of two parties who fight over one particular issue. Jake Lynch called this mental model two-party geometry. Two-party geometry means we think of conflicts as a tug-of-war or a soccer game. Party A fights party B for some big prize, the championship trophy, a stretch of land, political control, etc. When journalists have this tug-of-war image in their heads, the consequence is that conflicts get reported in a way that resembles a sports match. The focus of reporting is on the so-called wins and losses, the territory gained or lost, attacks executed, weapons used. The core question that drives the reporting is who will win. Anyone who has been in the midst of conflict knows that this tug-of-war model of conflict is nice and simple, easy to understand, but also totally inaccurate. Conflicts are never simple. They're messy, multi-layered, hard to make sense of. Conflicts are complex. When journalists report conflicts in a way that simplifies the situation to a sports match between two teams, journalists distort the truth. Their reporting is inaccurate. Even worse, such reporting, such framing of a conflict, leads readers and audiences to draw conclusions about the conflict that are wrong and that fuel escalation and violence. That's why our principle number two was to always approach a conflict from a perspective of a round-table situation. Mm -hmm. 
The idea of a round table means we are looking at conflict as a situation and a process that involves many stakeholders. Each one has their unique position, their individual unique needs and interests, and has a right to be heard and to be taken serious, regardless of their size or their political influence. Sitting around a round table is like sitting in a circle. There is no chairman who has the ultimate power. There are no sides to join as an attack of war. Just many different places and some open space in the middle for everyone to put their concerns out there. If our mental model of conflict is such a round table, it means we approach all stakeholders with equal interest because each one has something to contribute to a solution. The challenge is not to find out who pulls the hardest. The challenge is to gather everyone's concerns and contributions in the open space in the middle so that all can work on it and a solution together. Where two-party geometry is the ultimate irresponsible oversimplification of conflict, round table geometry means embracing the complexity of conflict and creating a space to make sense of it and work on it for all involved. This is what we explore further in the conflict-sensitive journalism principle number three, exploring complexity versus simplifying. I'd like to share a small anecdote with you. I moved to Southeast Asia in 2004 and in the early days still spent most of my time working as a journalist and documentary filmmaker. One weekend, some colleagues and I decided to take a hike into the last remaining stretch of original rainforest on the island of Negros in the Philippines. The area we were planning to hike through was known to be the stronghold of a local group that was in opposition to the government. Therefore, we decided to hike together with a local guide who knew the mountains, as well as the people whom we knew we might encounter. We hiked for an entire day through a lush green, soggy mountain range. And when we finally set up camp for the night in a mossy meadow, I spent an hour pulling spiky thorns out of both my hands and picking tiny green leeches off my skin. Later that night, over dinner, cooked on an improvised campfire, I quizzed our guide about the local groups. He was very willing to share his insights and his knowledge. After a short while, I started feeling as if my brain would turn into knots. Apparently, this group had a very charismatic leader, who was now an army general, due to some amnesty by the government, but that didn't work out as planned, and then he suddenly was, again, a leader of another group, or still related to this group, there were so many names dropped, so many people involved, so many tangled relationships. There were so many changes and shifting alliances. I tried to keep up with his long and winding explanations, but half the time I didn't know which time he was talking about. And to make it worse, the names of those involved all sounded very similar. I think many journalists are familiar with this. You run an interview and... You just try to keep up with the answer that comes as a flood of unstructured information, jumping in time, jumping across names, places, events. You scribble madly and later you look at your notes and you think, oh my God, I did not really get that. How do I make sense of all this? In my case, at some point, I just asked my guide and informant to take a quick break. I needed a way to capture and sort all this information to make any sense of it. 
In the middle of the forest, whiteboard drawings and mind mapping software were not an option, so I emptied my backpack and asked my companions to empty theirs. We gathered all sorts of stuff on the floor, besides the fireplace, and then we started visually mapping that conflict. Sardine cans turned into generals, flashlights and pocket knives were government organizations, sticks symbolized the connections. I had to break and fix and break again one stick to work out the broken, mended and broken again relationship between the general and the government. But with the help of the sardines and resulting visual processing, I finally got a decent grasp of this highly complex situation. This process we applied there in the middle of the mountains, in the night at the fireplace, is called conflict mapping. And I can assure you, it can be done on a whiteboard, it can be done in mind mapping software, but it is equally effective with sardine cans. The Philippine context provides a good example for the complexity of conflict and a huge challenge this degree of complexity poses for journalists covering it. To better understand why the geometry of conflict is so critical for conflict-sensitive journalism, we need to take a closer look at the matter of complexity. So, what is complexity? Complex matters are different from matters that are merely complicated. If something is complicated, it means we have a lot of pieces that are connected in many ways and affect each other. For example, the power grid or train network. In a complicated infrastructure like that, the connections and the links between parts are many, but they are clearly defined, like the train tracks that link together across the country. The impact of something changing in one part of the grid on the rest is actually predictable. A complex system looks different. There are many parts as well, many components, but how they interact changes constantly. They are all somehow interconnected, but at the same time dynamic. A change in one part does not necessarily affect the attached parts, but can cause a ripple effect throughout the entire system. You may have heard about the legendary butterfly effect. That's how conflicts work. We have many stakeholders, one fraction might be allied with a particular group today, but tomorrow something happens that changes their alliance. Since this happens in a complex system, such a change may tip the power balance in an entire nation, affecting stability, safety, food security, you name it. Predicting this is nearly impossible, because the web of dependencies and connections is so multilayered and dynamic that we can always just capture a glimpse of the status quo and then it has already changed again. Whenever journalists simplify conflicts by framing them as a two-party geometry, they tie up their readers in a constrained logic of understanding. Such reporting doesn't even allow us to see conflicts as complicated, not to mention complex. Two-party geometry suggests that conflicts are actually simple, two parties, one goal. The resulting logic, the model we have in our heads, is dominated by binary thinking and enforces polarization. A brilliant example for this is the EU referendum in the United Kingdom. There, a vastly complex web of relationships and interdependencies between the UK and the EU were boiled down into binary question, remain or leave. As you can see with that example, dualism leads to black and white thinking, to so-called manichism, 
the idea that there is good versus evil, and to us and them thinking. Us must be the good guys, so they must be the bad guys, and so any means to defeat them are justified. All these are natural elements of this common two-party conflict logic. The consequences we can see in the UK today. A divided nation, one half suspicious of any external influence, be it the EU as an institution or immigrants in general. The other half feeling deprived of their chance to be part of a greater connected world, be it through free movement or access to a Europe-wide market for goods and labor. Both blaming each other for the status quo and some profiteers, as there are always those who know how to reap the rewards of conflict. UK media played a major role in propagating the divisive narratives that drove the UK referendum and its aftermath, of which a true fallout is yet to be seen. It is actually quite scary if we think about the consequences of our choices of reporting in this way. Journalism is often the channel through which we learn about what is happening day after day. Media reporting shapes our understanding. We all make decisions based on our understanding of the world around us. If our understanding is that there is a ruthless, evil enemy out there who wants to take something we don't want to give up, we will gear up for battle. And when that battle commences, violence becomes an acceptable means to defend what we cherish. In such a logic, the direct violence committed by the other, the party we don't feel associated with, is often seen as a result of madness, of fanaticism or so-called tribal anarchy. One party, the evil guys, commit atrocities against the other party, the good guys, us or the group we feel closer to for whatever reason. Once a personal group is defined as evil, it means they have lost their humanity, maybe even their sanity. The good guys, us of course, then have all rights and even obligations to attack the evil ones, them, to remove the threat they represent. That is how an argument for war is built. To create true understanding and facilitate communication across society, as the discursive journalism model requires, reporters have to explore and explain the often brain-hurting complexity of conflicts instead of simplifying the situation so it fits the headlines. Not an easy task, I know. So how do we do that? Well, first, there are some key questions that can guide us. Who are the stakeholders? What is each of their unique point of view? What are their true interests? What is it they really want and need, and which they hide behind their arguments and positions? What are their motivations? Second, journalists also need to analyze the conditions and the context in which a conflict evolves. This usually means digging into the historical context, as well as the geography, the demographics and key events and developments. Finally, we need to identify the true reasons for why violence happens. As a result of good reporting, it often becomes apparent that the direct violence we see is only the tip of the iceberg. That is rooted in invisible structural and cultural violence and isn't simply an outburst of the madness of an evil villain. Conflict-sensitive journalism uses a lot of tools derived from conflict analysis to help us capture complex information and structure it so we can work with it. We use conflict mapping to analyze the stakeholders involved in conflict and their connections with each other. 
We use timelines to explore how a conflict has evolved throughout history and how it has escalated and de-escalated. We use the conflict layer model, or the onion, as a reminder that behind the positions the conflict parties state are hidden interests and needs, and that they are what truly motivates all stakeholders' actions. We will explore these tools later in depth, because they represent key principles in our CSJ toolbox. Also, later on in this podcast series, we'll explore the question of how to report violence in greater depth. There is a conflict-sensitive journalism principle focusing particularly on that very critical question. For now, I think we have plowed through enough challenging contact for one episode. So let me summarize today's thoughts for you. Journalists often tend to simplify complex conflicts because of their own biases and limited understanding or because they think that is all our readers can cope with. Simplifying complex issues is dangerous, especially when conflicts are simplified to a degree where we present them as a two-party geometry or a soccer match. Seeing conflict through such a lens leads to a string of conclusions in the reader's mind. It causes dualism, us and them thinking, and forces everyone to take a side in the conflict. It causes the perception that the only way to end the conflict is by winning it and defeating the evil that is the opponent. This leads unavoidably to escalation and violence. Conflict-sensitive journalism requires journalists to explore the complexity of conflict, the many different stakeholders, their interests and needs. When we become aware of the dynamic and complex nature of conflicts, these don't just pose a challenge, they also offer opportunities. They free us from the tug of war in which the only choice we have is which side to join. And they give us room to maneuver to find interesting and rewarding interventions, or in case of the journalists, interesting and rewarding stories, that address the need of all stakeholders without depriving the others. By exploring complexity, journalists crack open a crystallized situation in which everyone seems stuck. We open new avenues and bring back flow into the system. The most important thing for us to do is to release the constraints around our own thinking and free ourselves from the mental hold of two-party geometry. Let's leave the soccer on the soccer pitch where it belongs. With this, we have already reached the end of our fourth episode. I know this is quite heavy stuff and even my head feels a little stretched now. Don't worry about it, just let it sink in and observe the media reporting of conflicts over the coming days. You will see all of this reflected there and with some practical examples you will realize what I have been discussing here. In the next episode, I will look some more at the role of journalism. This time, we will go beyond the fundamental question, why does journalism exist? We'll look at how our understanding of the journalist's job leads to day-to-day decision-making in the newsroom. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me again next time. In the meantime, keep the great work up wherever you're listening from. And as always, stay safe and sane. So much for today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you hit the subscribe button so you won't miss out on any of the future episodes. And I would really appreciate if you leave me a rating on iTunes, on Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 
If you want to learn more about the Peacebuilding Practitioner, head over to my webpage, that's www.thepeacebuildingpractitioner.org, where you find plenty of articles from practitioners for practitioners. And if you want to dive even deeper into this field of work, join us for one of our online courses. If you want to learn more about that, just get in contact with me. You'll find the contact details in the show notes or on my webpage.